TalkCatholicTheWebsite.com, your host, Tim Kilcoyne. No agendas here, just the straight and narrow, through Mary to Jesus, the Catholic faith proclaimed and preserved. Hope to see you here every week. Catholic.com with Tim Kilcoyne. As I mentioned previously, sometimes I let a little dust settle before I have to address another bomb thrown by the Vatican. And yes, we will continue on with Who Am I to Judge, our book review in the second part of the show. But there was a bomb. It was almost like the way political parties do it on a Friday afternoon in the middle of the summertime. Only this one was thrown just before Christmas. And it was called Fiducia Supplicants on the blessing of same-sex couples. And before I dive into it, I'm thinking of a book I did a little bit of a review on, Truth Overruled, The The Future of Marriage and Religious Freedom by Ryan T. Anderson. I can remember a a little excerpt where he talks about when you have to kind of explain to people why wheels are round, you know the times are dark. So uh, this is one of those uh, topics that I wish I didn't have to do. I shouldn't have to be doing it. And yet because of the climate of insanity and the diabolical disorientation, and let's not forget the silence of our leadership within the church way too often, that has been upon us for a few years now, for sure, as in decades, it is necessary for the clarity of Catholic Church teaching. And I am going to read from the great Father Gerald Murray, who I have told you, if you want the quintessential, virtually perfect Catholic answer, textbook for sure, it is Father Murray. And he writes for the CatholicThing.org. Here's an article he wrote entitled, In One Word, Disaster. He says, The first and most serious problem in fiducia supplicants is the choice of the word couple to describe two people of the same sex who engage in sodomy within an ongoing publicly known, self-proclaimed, committed relationship such as a civil marriage. I note with dismay that the word sodomy is not found in fiducia supplicants, neither do the words homosexual or homosexuality appear in fiducia supplicants. Indeed, no clear mention at all is made of what distinguishes same-sex couples from other forms of partnership or association between two persons of the same sex. Neither does fiducia supplicants state what behavior distinguishes these couples from the couple's Fiducia describes as being in irregular situations, quote-unquote, presumably divorced and civilly remarried men and women. The word adultery is also absent from fiducia supplicants. Fiducia supplicants states that both types of couples engage in sexual relations apart from marriage, but fiducia supplicants neglects to mention that first type of couple does so in an unnatural way and the second in a natural but immoral way, i.e. adulterous relations. The use of the word couple to describe two persons of the same sex who engage in 
in sodomy has no scriptural, theological, or canonical basis at all. Congregation for the Doctrine of the Faith stated in its 2003 document, Considerations Regarding Proposals to Give Legal Recognition to Unions Between Homosexual Persons, it says, There are absolutely no grounds for considering homosexual unions to be in any way similar or even remotely analogous to God's plan for marriage and family. Marriage is holy while homosexual acts go against the natural moral law. Homosexual acts close the sexual act of the gift of life. They do not proceed from a genuine, affective, and sexual complementarity. Under no circumstances can they be approved. The church has never and should never categorize two people in homosexual union with the same word the church uses to designate a man and a woman who are married, or are engaged to be married, or are dating in view of possibly getting married. In a congregation of the doctrine of the faith in 1986, the letter prophetically warned, increasing numbers of people today, even within the church are bringing enormous pressure to bear on the church to accept the homosexual condition as though it were not disordered and to condone homosexual activity. Those within the church who argue in this fashion often have close ties with those with similar views outside it. These latter groups are guided by a vision opposed to the truth about the human person, which is fully disclosed in the mystery of Christ. They reflect, even if not entirely consciously, a materialistic ideology which denies the transcendent nature of the human person as well as the supernatural vocation of every individual. Church's ministers must ensure that homosexual persons in their care will not be misled by this point of view that all couples, he's saying, are the same. The fatal consequence of endorsing the unchristian notion that two cohabitating homosexuals are in fact a couple is the stunning announcement that homosexual couples, like any other couples, can be blessed because they too beg that all that is true and good and humanly valid in their lives and their relationships be enriched, healed, and elevated by the presence of the Holy Spirit, quote-unquote, from fiducia supplicants. Fiducia supplicants, despite its claims to be a development, quote-unquote, of the church's teaching on blessings, represents a victory for those who condones homosexual activity. Because granting permission to a priest to bless not individual homosexuals, no permission in fact is needed, but rather homosexual couples who are joined together in some form of union that constitutes them as a couple gives the false appearance that God does indeed bless mortal sin and that God is pleased when his priests and bishops invoke his blessing on what God has forbidden. He then refers to the scripture, Romans chapter 1, verse 24 to 27, that makes it abundantly clear the church's scriptural basis for her teachings. Father Murray finishes up by saying, A disordered sexual relationship brought into being by self-indulgent shameless acts is not blessable. Fiducia supplicants is a scandal and a disaster for claiming it is. In staying with the general theme that sometimes you have to explain why the wheels are round, in a recent book, Credo, a compendium of the Catholic faith. This is one marvelous catechism written by Bishop Athanasius Schneider, just hot off the presses. He adds to the list of disorders, as there is a connection with the modern-day transgender madness. He says, Is every human person created as a man or woman, male or female? It's impossible not to make the correlation between all of these assaults on marriage. Yes, the male and female sexes are fundamental and unalterable biological realities, and the body of each person reveals whether they are a man or a woman. Male and female, God created them, and he who made man from the beginning made them male and female. What of the novel claim that our gender may not correspond to our biological sex? 
This era of gender ideology or gender theory denies the reality of the two sexes and replaces it with unlimited private choice, claiming that one's inner thoughts, feelings, or merely social and educational conditioning constitute the gender of the true self, a kind of Gnostic and ultimately satanic dualism that must be rejected. Why does the era of gender ideology appear more prevalent in our time? The abandonment of reason is the typical outcome of sins against chastity. Can I say that one more time for all parents universally? The abandonment of reason is the typical outcome of sins against unchastity. Oh, please, all homeschoolers, it just should be written at the bottom of every quiz and test. Okay. Bishop Schneider says, sins that are all too common today. Furthermore, fallen man is always tempted to make his own mind the source of truth rather than conform to the external objective laws of nature and revelation. See second book of Corinthians chapter 10 verse 5. What of the claim that our sexual orientation may not correspond to our biological sex, the notion that God creates a disordered sexual attraction in some persons, or that he wills such feelings to be acted upon in some cases, is contrary to both reason and revelation, for God is not a God of disorder, but of peace. First book, Corinthians, chapter 14, verse 33. Ladies and gentlemen, I am well aware that what you have just heard is official, age-old, 2024 Deposit of Faith Catholic Church teaching. And it wasn't my fault that it was virtually never expounded upon by virtually anybody in the church's educational circle. Easily over four decades, if not more. All through virtually my lifetime. Gee, I wonder why. When you see the assaults that come upon people that actually speak the true Catholic faith, we will continue to do so right here as certainly part of my commission by our Lord. Going back to 1978, to be most specific, it is all of our obligations as leaders in the church in her educational ministry. And that includes the Pope and the head of the dicastery for the congregation of the faith and every other cardinal and bishop and priest and brother and sister and nun. They're all under the same obligation to teach what the church teaches in season and out. And yes, her disciplines may change as to whether priests can get married and what language you're saying the mass in, but the doctrine and the dogma doesn't change. So as the culture gets wicked, there's no coincidence as to where the assaults are coming from. The evil one. And the world and the flesh. We've been told where the opposite point of view is coming from. From the beginning. All right, and I should just quickly allude to another book uh, that talks about the marketing of evil that got us duped into being sympathetic uh, to this woke agenda. The book is, in fact, called The Marketing of Evil by David Capellian, and I read to finish. In the very first chapter of this book, Marketing Blitz, Selling Gay Rights to America, he goes into real detail about the real psychological warfare tactics designed to get you kind of numb to it all, just to understand everybody's the same, and what's the big deal here, that kind of thing, and how they employ this in marketing strategies. And he says later in the chapter, 
There was a time when most Americans knew that homosexuals were not born that way, but rather had their normal gender identity development disturbed and redirected through early childhood experiences. There was a time when we recognized on some level that unhealthy relationships with mothers and fathers could cause girls and boys to grow up with gender confusion, just like emotionally devastating traumatic experiences of molestation, if not dealt with properly. But that was a time before much of America itself was seduced into believing there was no God, or if there was a God, he is inconsequential to the affairs of the world. It was a time when Judeo-Christian morality inspired the culture and laws of the land. He abandoned old-fashioned notions of right and wrong in favor of consensuality, which means two people can do whatever they want, no matter how abominable, as long as they don't hurt anybody else, quote-unquote. The problem with that, aside from the fact that it denies the existence of God and his laws, is that in such a deluded state, You have no basis for determining if you're hurting another person or not. A pedophile justifies sex with children precisely because he doesn't believe he's hurting the child. Rather, he believes he's loving them. You might wonder, where and when will this gay rights public relations steamroller stop? The end game is not only to bring about the complete acceptance of homosexuality, including same-sex marriage, but also to prohibit and even criminalize public criticism of homosexuality, including the quotation of biblical passages disapproving of homosexuality, like the Romans passage. In other words, total jamming of criticism with the force of law. This is already essentially the case in Canada and parts of Scandinavia. It's not about rights. It's about redefining truth and censoring all criticism so that militant homosexuals can be comfortable in their lifestyle without having to be disturbed by reality. Remember, all of us, homosexuals included, have a conscience, that other dimensional standard that God has tucked away inside each of us, that causes us inner conflict when we're doing the wrong thing. But if we tumble into the grip of dark forces we don't understand and then start to defend our obsessions and compulsions, we inevitably come to regard our conscience as the enemy. And although we may be somewhat successful in drowning out that inner warning bell, what happens when this same rejected conscience factor appears in another person and gets too close to us for comfort? We feel threatened. Therefore, we feel compelled to silence the voice of conscience. Not just the one inside of us, but the one in other people, which tends to revive our own conscience with which we're at war. This means we can't tolerate dissent. We simply can't stand it. It makes us want to scream. Remember, our conflicts contain the seeds of redemption. That is, as long as we know we have a problem, there's hope for a change. But if we deny there's a problem, we literally are robbed of the chance to find healing. That's exactly what America has done in buying into the gay rights movement, quote-unquote. We have betrayed our homosexual brothers and sisters. A generation ago, we understood there is such a thing as sin, and that sin is a serious matter and to be avoided. Now there is no societal consciousness of sin, only limitless freedom, choice, and consensual relationships. Beguiled by our scientific and technological advances into believing we are enlightened, in reality, as we move further and further away from our Judeo-Christian spiritual roots, we actually understand less and less about ourselves. Most of all, we've forgotten as a society what love is. In other words, we need to side with the afflicted person's conscience. In the end, we have to ask ourselves, which is worse, the previous era in America when homosexuals were reviled and driven underground? or today's America when the pendulum has swung so far in the other direction that those in the grip of powerful self-destructive compulsions are fawned over and lionized as heroes. Either way, because the rest of us have failed to find the real love 
they remain victims. Very interesting analysis by David Kopelian, where he's basically telling us that our understanding of ourselves and our human sexuality is rooted in our Judeo-Christian roots. That's where the truth is and where it will continue to be, and it's only relief for those who have swayed away from that foundation. We need to be there for them, not approving of their errant behavior. That is church teaching, always has been. We would summarize it as love the sin or hate the sin, but perhaps we can use other language to accompany them indeed. Personally, I can attest when one may not be called to marriage or the situation has not presented itself, as it didn't for me through the lifespan to date. I am a single guy, always have been. I live a chaste, celibate life, always have. I don't get a different playbook. And is it difficult and hard to bear? Indeed, no doubt. And I do the best I can in offering up for the sins of the many, my hardship emotionally. I'm not having a woman by my side. And that becomes a joy. But I'm not going to rewrite God's playbook of divine revelation and natural law. When we come back, who am I to judge? Professor Edward Stree on the other side. This is WQPH Radio 89.3 FM. Here's a classic romantic ballad from Freddie Jackson for your Valentine's Day. You are my lady. There's something that I want to say. Words sometimes get in the way I just want to show my feelings for you There's nothing that I'd rather do Than spend every moment with you number four for dealing with relativism and the title of the chapter is making judgments versus judging souls and please listen in carefully if there's anything that represents a duping of the evil one in our time it is exactly this he starts with a quote by protestant pastor rick warren our culture has accepted two huge lies the first is that if you disagree with someone's lifestyle you must fear or hate them the second is that 
To love someone means you agree with everything they believe or do. Both are nonsense. You don't have to compromise conviction to be compassionate. Let's say that one one more time. You don't have to compromise conviction to be compassionate. Professor Sri says, On the one hand, if we say a certain behavior is wrong, people get angry because they automatically assume we're condemning them, that we hate them, or think they're a bad person. Don't judge me. On the other hand, if we don't joyfully accept other people's ideas or ways of living, we find ourselves judged and condemned for not being more tolerant and loving. You don't approve of what I'm doing. That means you don't love me. Let's take a closer look at this. Are we being hateful just because we think something is wrong? Can we make a judgment in our heads without judging a person's heart? This leads to our fourth key to engaging relativistic friends to underscore the big difference between making a judgment and judging a person's soul. Is it okay for me to use my mind and simply make a judgment? If I notice it's raining, I make a judgment. I should bring my umbrella. If it's snowing, I make a judgment. I should wear my winter coat. Am I a mean, bigoted person if I do this? Of course not. God gave me a mind. He wants me to use it. Similarly, can I use my mind to make a judgment about someone else's actions? If I see my toddler about to run into the street, can I make the judgment that's not good for her? She might get hit by a car. Or if I see her about to touch a hot burner on the stove, can I use my mind and make the judgment that's not good for her? She will get burned. If I do this, I'm not saying she's a horrible person. I'm just observing that she's about to do something that will cause her great harm. Let's take this a step further. Can I use my mind and make a judgment about someone else's moral actions? Let's say there's a young female college student who's sleeping around with one man after another each week. Can I use my mind and make the judgment that's not good for her? Can I make the judgment she's not going to be happy living this way? She's never going to find the lasting love she longs for? Of course. But let's be clear. I'm not judging her soul if I do that. She may be doing something objectively wrong, but I don't know her personal situation before God. I don't know her background, her situation, or her intentions. Who am I to judge? A soul's status before God is something between that person and God alone. Various factors in people's lives may impair their free choices in such a way that limits their culpability or moral guilt. As Pope Francis explains, each person's situation before God and their life in grace are mysteries which no one can fully know from without. Perhaps this young woman has never experienced authentic love. Maybe she was sexually abused. Maybe she has always been taught that this is what it means to be a liberated woman. Such a woman needs to know my compassion, not just a lecture on the moral law. To love is to will the good of another, to seek what's best for the other person. And if I truly love this person, then it's the loving thing to show her the better way. Certainly I should do this prudently, in the right time and in the right way, and with great gentleness, humility, and compassion. But it is not loving to sit back and never want to share the truth with her. Indifference does not equal love. This is what relativism forces us to do. It divides us. It trains us to focus on ourselves and ignore the people around us, what they're going through, how they're living, and ways they might need our help. When we see someone making poor choices, whether they are hurting themselves or hurting others, we should try to help them. But relativism confuses us. It makes us doubt ourselves. He cites typical quotes like, Maybe it's not a big deal if he wants to get drunk all the time. He hasn't become physically abusive yet. Or... I'm worried about my sister's relationship with her husband, but it's her life. I don't want to interfere. They'll think that I hate them, so I'm not going to say anything. In many ways, relativism paralyzes us, so we sit back and do nothing and let our friends and relatives damage their lives. Ultimately, relativism trains us to be indifferent to other people. We'll be polite and nice to others who are making bad choices. We might tolerate their decisions and coexist with them. But do we love them? In the end, relativism encourages us 
to be unconcerned about the people around us and neglect our responsibilities toward them. Am I my brother's keeper? Genesis 4, verse 9. Yes, Jesus did teach another way. He says, he wasn't indifferent to others. He didn't say, it's not my life, whatever works for them. No, Jesus came with two essential sides of love, a soft side of mercy, compassion, and acceptance, and a firm side that constantly calls us to conversion. He came not to condemn, and he taught us to do the same, judge not. On the other hand, he persistently challenged people to repent from the evil they were doing. And he did this because he loved them and knew they would not be happy living apart from God's plan, i.e., God knows what works. I often have a little chuckle in telling some of my closer friends, do you know that I am called to tell people how to live? (laughs) How dare I? That's exactly what ministry is all about, you know. We're trying to make God's word known to others. And that means showing them a plan, God's plan, for their life. They don't always take kindly to that. I have a good golfing friend. He's in his 80s. He's a great dad, a great husband, devoted to all his responsibilities. I think he has 17 grandchildren now. Very fruitful. But he kind of gravitated ever so gradually towards the libertarian posture. That's their position. Don't tell me what's going on, especially behind closed doors, that kind of thing. He would definitely call me that self-righteous, well, I won't go on. Uh, Any kind of moral pronouncement about anything is considered self-righteous on my part. All right, this is how they peg you. They try to get you in that box where you're the boogeyman because you actually care and you want to point out moral wrongdoing. Just recently, he told me about one of his daughters who had to take the jab or lose her job. And I acknowledged a very difficult predicament that many people were put in unjustifiably. But if their conscience was rightly formed in its research and prayer, and especially if she had the data that we now have three years later, she may well have opted differently. But this means putting God and faith first, not your daughter. My friend didn't want to listen to this spiel. And this is where so many people go wrong, ladies and gentlemen. They're watering down the faith and its truths, its moral teachings, because their son or daughter is violating them. Can we ever get beyond this? God comes first. Yes. Right here at WQPH Radio 89.3 FM. I hear Valentine's in the air. God bless. Let your light shine. That is what it's all about here at WQPH Radio 89.3 FM. But we need to hear your story. You want your voice to be his voice. That is making the faith known to others. Please, my number is 877-625-3727. Tim Kilcoyne, TalkCatholic.com. St. Mother Teresa told us your ministry is your work right where you are. Grab on to this microphone. God bless.